The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's open our Bibles now to Leviticus chapter 16. Our subject this evening is the Day of Atonement, which was the highest and holiest day of worship in Israel. And the next few lessons uh, on the Day of Atonement will end our series on seeking the Savior in the sacrifices. And it's fitting that we should end with the Day of Atonement because this was the day that the sacrifices focused mainly on the work of the high priest as he went behind the veil of the tabernacle and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. Now the holiest place of all was entered only on that day where the priest sprinkled the blood of bulls and goats and made that sacrifice for the people. And I've looked over this 16th chapter, of course, studying it and uh, over these past few weeks, and admittedly there are parts of it that are very, very difficult to understand. The order of services is really hard to keep up with, and if you read extra information and you're interested in things like, what have the Jews practiced in time since? Uh, what, what do they do now about the Day of Atonement, or even what did they do just centuries after these things were given in the book of Leviticus, well, you'll find that there's a lot of different things that went on, many, many things that were passed down by oral traditions, and that just confuses what we read here, and uh, it makes it hard to figure out what exactly did they do on this day as far as how many times the priest went in, what are all these different sacrifices about, and so forth. And what I've come to the conclusion is that it's really not worth our time to figure out what others are not sure of because we're not required to reproduce the Day of Atonement for our worship today. But I do want to reemphasize that for Israel, when God gave these these, uh, details, they were extremely important and they were to be uh, strictly observed. And I can only uh, assume that some of what they did was passed down through oral tradition And if there were any allowances made to do something differently, it did not have anything to do with the typology that is reflected in these scriptures. That part is extremely important and has to be brought forward into the New Testament scriptures or it's all wrong and the pictures of Christ are wrong. Now the beginning of the chapter signals a warning. Uh, You might just want to look at it. I hadn't planned to read it, but just a couple of verses there at the beginning of chapter uh, 16. And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So the beginning of this chapter signals a warning, and I don't think it's any coincidence that here we find this a reference to this story of the strange fire of Nadab and Abihu, because surely Israel, after hearing this, is not going to make the mistake that these instructions shouldn't be followed precisely. The punishment for usurping God's authority for Aaron and his sons was taken very seriously, and that punishment was death. Now, if there, if there was something that I told you that if you do this, 
If you come into Berean Baptist Church and you do this, God is going to strike you dead. Then I think probably what you'd want to do is get a pen and a piece of paper and write that down. To make sure you didn't forget it. Well, in fact, this is what God did for us in the scriptures. He wrote it down so that we wouldn't forget it. And then we seek to change anything that the word of God says. You had better be careful. Better be careful what's preached from the pulpit. You better be careful what you, what you teach and what people believe. You're going to be held accountable for that. Now, in the beginning of the last message, which was way back before Easter, I, I asked if the Day of Atonement for the Jews is like Christmas for Christians. Christmas is our big celebration, our big holy day, quote-unquote. Was the Day of Atonement like that for the Jews? Well, we find that the Day of Atonement was described as a fast, not a feast, but a fast. You don't usually think of uh, parting if you're having a fast. A festive celebration doesn't seem to accurately represent what we see in verse number 31. In that verse, the Lord said, you shall afflict your souls. And we're going to make this point a little bit later, but for now, we understand this was not a festive occasion. The Day of Atonement was a Sabbath day, not a time of light-hearted frivolity. So what they did on Sabbath days was to deprive themselves. They afflicted themselves because of the solemnity of the occasion. Now, another point to reemphasize from that first message is that more than any other day, the activities of this day made it very clear that what was in the law has no ability to save. If anything, the law kept saying to them, you've got to do more. They've never done enough. There is no place for them to stop making sacrifices. And the Day of Atonement was the culmination of the yearly sacrifices, but each year that cycle starts again. And although the priests went into the Holy of Holies only on this one day, there isn't any sense of finality in that. As soon as it was done, then starts another 52 weeks of sacrifice, and then that ends only to begin again. Another 52 weeks and that went on for 1,500 years until Christ came and ended all of that by his one-time personal offering. And so if the Jews should have learned anything from what they see in Old Testament sacrifices and the rituals, the constant repetition of it all, is that the law can never do anything for us. We'll never be saved by it. Now, the author of Hebrews explained to Jews who thought that they were giving up the best, which would be their system of sacrifice. It's giving up the best so that they would believe in Christ, something they thought to be inferior. Moses, or rather, uh, the author just very quickly explains that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But for the most part, they missed that truth and they weren't alone in missing it. The devil loves to deceive with a work salvation and so... He wouldn't let the Christian church alone. So we get into the New Testament and through the New Testament era, the devil tries to keep rituals alive. He wants to keep people doing religious rituals and make people believe that they can be saved by the rituals. Now, of course, we don't make or people don't make ritual sacrifices today, but they do have their rituals nonetheless. 
Apostate Christianity has its idols in their churches. It has its icons. It has its sacraments. It has rites and ceremonies. It has a priesthood that's modeled after the Old Testament priesthood with all of its vestments and all those rituals. And none of that can save anybody any more than the law could during the Old Testament times. And the one who practices rituals, you just ask that person. Ask that person who practices those, if at any time they know that they are eternally saved. There aren't any of them that are assured of heaven. None of them are confident because when they're through with the Mass, then they're told, well, there's another Mass. And you've got to come to that one. If you don't come to that one, and if you don't often take the Mass, then you'll be lost. You'll go to hell or purgatory if you don't do it. You know, that point was driven home to me when I spoke with Araceli Silva just before she passed away. She missed the Lord's Supper. Now, you know that Araceli was always here preparing the supper, did that for years, all, all the time that I've been pastor. Araceli was back there helping the deacons, and I mentioned this yesterday in her burial that she always had her way of doing things. Uh, I think Lino, where's Lino? I think he, he would remember this, that um, Araceli always wanted to change things. She knew exactly the way I wanted it, but she wanted to change things. And she would come into my office and, and she would say, no, I think we only need four trays tonight. And a few less, a few less cups for the juice. And I would say, no, Araceli, th this is the way it needs to be done. And this is what I want. And she would look at me and she'd say, she'd shrug her shoulders. She'd turn around and walk out of the office. And it would be done exactly like it needed to be done, exactly the way I wanted. Of course, until Matt got hold of it and then he kind of... Um, but anyway, anyway, um, this, this point was driven home uh, when I was talking to Araceli after she missed the Lord's Supper, and she was just telling me this little story, how that one of her family members is Catholic, and her family member was very concerned about Araceli's salvation because she had missed the Lord's Supper. Now, you see that if you believe commandments will save you, there's always more commandments to obey. Roman Catholicism has a vested interest in destroying assurance because that helps feed the system, keeps putting money into it. They don't trust that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Their salvation is dependent as much on them as it is on Christ. Well, the book of Hebrews devotes a, a great deal of space to the Day of Atonement. It exposits that day, really not dealing with many of the other sacrifices and days of sacrifices that were made in Israel, but instead it concentrates mostly on the Day of Atonement because it is Israel's or was Israel's most significant day. Now, in the 29th verse of this 16th chapter, the time of the observance is set. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. In the 30th verse, it says it's a day of atonement. In the 31st, it's announced to be a Sabbath. In the 34th, it's to be a perpetual observance. 34, and it shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now notice again, it says that it is a Sabbath. A Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. And so it's a day of rest from normal activities. Now it certainly was not 
a day of cessation of work for the priests because this was his busiest day. And interestingly, the Jews who would never make exceptions for Jesus and his disciples when uh, they picked heads of wheat on the Sabbath day to eat, Jesus reminded them of the work of the priests. And he said, the priests are required to work on the Sabbath days. They profane the Sabbath and yet they are blameless. And as you know, he went on to teach that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The text here gives us the day of observance. It's the 10th day of the 7th month. On our calendar, that would be in the month of September. It's the month Tizri for Israel. And counting from our month of March, which was their first month of the year, this would be the 7th month. Now, as you know, though, the the 10th of September doesn't always fall on the same day of the year, uh, same day of the week each year. It was a Sabbath, and more frequently than not, it didn't fall on a Saturday. A Monday, a Tuesday, or any other day of the week could be a Sabbath. And I point this out to you because Sabbath does not mean Saturday. I think you know that, but most people think, oh, Sabbath, that means Saturday. Well, it doesn't mean Saturday, and thus we are not bound to believe. This might seem like a totally different subject, but we're not bound to believe that Christ was sacrificed on Friday because the next day was a Sabbath. To be in the tomb for three days and three nights, Christ, I think, must have been crucified earlier in the week, so that means that there must have been another Sabbath during that week. We do know that he was taken down from the cross before the Sabbath, and we know that the day he arose was on a Sunday. And what most people want to do is try to shove minimum parts of two days in between Friday and Sunday morning and call that three days when there's only one full day in there, that's Saturday. And it might have been a whole lot less confusing if Jesus had just predicted he'd be in the tomb for a day and a half. (laughs) Jonah would have liked that much better. Uh, Spending a day and a half in the whale's belly is a lot better than spending three. He might have been able to withstand that. But in any case... The 10th of September wasn't always a Saturday, but sometimes it was. And that complicates things a little bit in this story. Daily sacrifices are always made. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so on. Daily sacrifices are made. On Saturday, or on a Sabbath day, I should say, a Sabbath day, there are other extra sacrifices that are made. And then when the Day of Atonement falls on a Sabbath, then you have the daily sacrifices, you have the Sabbath sacrifices, and you have the Day of Atonement sacrifices. I'm sure you've heard the saying, busier than a one-armed paper hanger. That's what the high priest was if the Day of Atonement happened to fall on a regular Sabbath. So the Day of Atonement was truly a very, very bloody day. It was a very solemn day, and it didn't really make much for putting people into a festive mood. Now, in this study... it's, It's my purpose to point out the peculiarities of this day. What is the thing that made it different? What What did the high priest do that made this different from other days of sacrifice? Well, let me give you the first two observations that we had in the in the last message. That was several weeks ago, so I'll remind you of those. We said that first, the Day of Atonement was a day of humility. It began with the regular daily sacrifices, and the high priest would go about his normal duties. He would dress in the full outfit that we studied in Exodus 28, 
And then when those offerings were through, it came time for him to do the special service of the Day of Atonement. And to make national atonement for the sins of Israel, every part, I mean, his next job is to cleanse every part of the tabernacle. All of it had to be sanctified. And that means from the brazen altar that is outside all the way to everything that's on the inside, even including the Holy of Holies, every part of the tabernacle must be sanctified. And before he began that work of sanctification, he took off the robes that he wore for glory and beauty, and he was dressed only in a white linen robe and a special white linen hat. And that was to show the humility, the purity and the humility of Christ. Now, the priest probably didn't understand what all of that was about, all the significance of it, but it does show Christ as he's seen in Philippians, that he laid aside his visible glory to become ordinary, that is to become a servant of others. In his flesh, his deity was veiled, it's hidden. In his flesh, he was humbled, and he made himself lower than angels to assume the place of a lowly man. That same picture is shown in another way on the inside of the tabernacle by the curtain that hung between the holy place and the most holy place. And that curtain blocked out the light of the Shekinah that was in the Holy of Holies from shining into the other part of the tabernacle. That veil, we're told, symbolized the body of Christ. And it was the body of Christ that hid his glory. And it was only when the veil was taken away that Christ could be seen as all-glorious. And that veil and the glorious light on the mercy seat, that's going to come into play later in the sacrifices made on this day. So the priest took off the beautiful garments. He wore only the white linen robe. And if you read this chapter all the way through, you'll see the priest changing his clothes often. He would take them off and he would wash himself and put the clothes back on. Then at the next stage of sacrifice, he would go through the ritual once again. And then he would take off his clothes, wash himself and put those clothes back on. And each of those steps was for purifying. And it is just another way of showing that the law is never enough. That every step taken is followed by another sacrifice and another washing or, or something that symbolizes the recognition of, of sin, that sin must be purged. So none of that is permanent. None of it's ever taken away permanently and couldn't be until Christ cleansed all of it completely with his own blood. Then secondly, it was a day of sacrifices. I did say that's obvious. It is a day of sacrifices. Many, many were made. All the daily sacrifices were made, then all the special ones for atonement. And I didn't speak of it last time, but as I mentioned just a moment ago, the priest had to cleanse every part of the tabernacle. And as you think of that, you say, well, that's, that's very strange that he would also need to make an offering and cleanse the Holy of Holies. But he did. But isn't the Shekinah in that place? Isn't the glory of God in that place? Yes, but it was still necessary to cleanse every part of the tabernacle because all of it had been touched by sinful men. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat on top of it was made by men. The altar of incense, the table of showbread, the curtains, the bars, the boards, the altar, everything was made by men. 
And so sacrifices were repeated for each of those because each of them must be cleansed. And that accounts for the priest changing his clothes often and washing between each step. And that picture is the defilement of sin that can never come in contact with the holy God. And so we see these multiple pictures that sin can never be finally purged by anything that we do. Oh, I know there are plenty of Baptists that are confused about that. Why they, they believe that we can't be saved by our works, but they make repentance and faith two acts that are enabled by a sinful heart. And they teach that repentance and faith arise from an unregenerate heart. Folks, that can't be. There isn't any good that comes from us. The unregenerate heart can never produce anything that's good. How can those accustomed to do evil do anything good? I think maybe Matt might have mentioned this in his sermon. Jeremiah thirteen twenty three. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Well, the act of the... The acts of the priests on the Day of Atonement tell us a different story about the heart of man, that everything that we touch is defiled. And so, repentance and faith must be given by God in a heart that has spiritual, been given spiritual vitality. Tabernacle worship is good for understanding theology. We see it repeatedly every time that we open up one of these chapters we see the typology of Christ's work come shining through it was a day of sacrifices and especially peculiar to the day is the scapegoat offering the expiatory and propitiatory aspects of Christ's death were demonstrated by two goats the offering of one and the release of another one was killed that's propitiation one was released when sins were confessed on his head, and that is expiation. So that covers those first two points that we talked about in that first message. Now let's move on then to the third observation. This was new for us this evening. That it was a day of imputation. Now you can, you can see many Bible doctrines are opened up to us in the pictures of this day. The tabernacle is a course in theology. So the next doctrine that we see here is imputation. This, this is a doctrine that I preach often because it's key to understanding justification. But perhaps maybe there is someone who's still unclear about this. That imputation means to charge to the account of another. It's an accounting term like, like making a ledger where you have on one side debts that must be settled. And the question is how are you going to settle those debts? The debt that we owe is a debt of sin, and that debt is owed to God, and how is that debt going to be paid? There are two sides of imputation. The merits to settle the debt that we owe to God are supplied by Christ in his perfect life of obedience. Now, usually, imputation is taught from only that one side. The definition of justification is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our sin account for that debt that is owed to God. But the scapegoat offering deals with the other side of that. And this is the part where our sins are imputed or they are charged to Christ. Now if you look in the 21st verse. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. 
And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. What is the truth that's taught by those statements? The truth is that God put our sins on Christ. God put our sins on Christ. This is the imputation of our sins to Christ's account. So there's this double imputation that takes place. The righteousness of Christ goes to our account and our sins go to Christ's account. And the scapegoat pictures that second part of this imputation. Our sins transferred to Christ are pictured by sins confessed on the head of the goat and then sent away. Now years ago, I think this is um, 15, no, 13, 13 years ago I think it is. Uh, I was teaching on the tabernacle. These were the theological concepts that we dealt with. And over much time of teaching over these past years, you become very well acquainted with all of this. So it's not like I'm telling you something new tonight. These are doctrines that have become second nature to you. I hear it in our Romans class as the men discuss. I think maybe Brother John uh, in his sermon. I'm not sure, but I can't. they kind of flow together for me. But I think that John might have mentioned imputation and in his sermon when he talked about the uh, from Philippians chapter 2 and so I keep hearing this we become very well acquainted with it it's second nature to us but way back then it wasn't this was foreign material because quite frankly there was a lack of theological understanding on very important doctrines of the faith and there are there are men who are heroes to many Baptist people who deny imputation both sides of this, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us and our sins are imputed to him. Now that would seem, I would think, very strange to you to hear that now because you do understand that imputation is part and parcel of our justification. That is what it means to be justified. So I cringe every time that I hear these kinds of things, and I've said this before, and again going back to uh, what I've heard in the messages, maybe Matt said something about Charles Finney, did you? Um, think maybe he didn't but I thought that he did well if you didn't you should have um, <laughs> but we uh, I've mentioned this before about, uh, before about Charles Finney the 19th century revivalist who was a hero to many Baptists and he did not believe in the doctrine of imputation he denied the transfer of sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us. And so that led him to reject the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And yet, because he fits the model of their soul winning techniques, there are many Baptists who say, oh, here was a man who was a great soul winner. These are atonement issues that we're speaking of. This is the day, the great day of Israel's history. Atonement is not a matter to be trifled with. Nadab and Abihu learned that lesson. And there are many Baptists who need to learn it as well. Imputation and substitution are taught in tabernacle types. So the priest putting his hands on the head of the animal and confessing sin make this obvious that the sins of the people were symbolically transferred to the goat. And there's no purpose for that unless we have some sort of antitype that's fulfilled in Christ as explained in the New Testament. Well, Finney denied all of that and other doctrines that are critical to the theology of salvation. He was a heretic in many ways. 
But this one, the, the denial of imputation and substitutionary atonement, folks, that is the difference between heaven and hell. Finney believed in the moral theory of atonement, or sometimes said that he believed in the governmental theory. And the moral theory is that Christ's life and death were only an example for us. They were to follow the example of Christ, and we are to give up sin and live better lives. That Christ didn't die to take our sins on him, but in his life and his death, all that he did was to give us a really good example to follow. And I know, even as I say that, that Finney and many others like him would say, oh yes, we do believe in, in salvation by grace, but it seems to me that if you believe these things, that you have removed grace and you've made justification a moral change rather than a legal change. And that's confusion between justification and sanctification, which is actually the viewpoint of Roman Catholicism. And you may remember we had a quiz in the forum class several weeks ago, and I asked if the primary purpose of Christ's death was to provide an example for sinners so that we would be motivated to love him. And the reason that question was asked is so we would have the opportunity to refute the moral theory of the atonement. And then we had another quiz on justification that, that gets to the heart of this issue that's before us tonight. And there were two defining questions that were asked there. And that is, in justification, does God make the sinner righteous or does he declare the sinner righteous? And there's a difference in those two. The answer to the first is no. The answer to the second is yes. God does not make sinners righteous in justification. That's the doctrine of sanctification. He declares the sinner righteous in justification. That's what we call a forensic transaction. That means this is a legal thing. It's a change of legal status. And as Luther said, we are justified yet sinful. We're not made perfectly righteous until we get to heaven and are glorified. And then glorification is, in fact, that final step of our sanctification. Well, this is part of Finney's confusion. He would have us to be justified by following a moral example, and that is impossible. And using that, that doctrine, Finney taught that man is capable of being holy, that he's capable of changing his own heart from sinfulness to holiness. And the reason that he believed this, because he didn't believe that man was born sinful. And so therefore he could return to his innocent state. Folks, there are many, many doctrinal errors that are compounded in these viewpoints, but nonetheless, that's what Tenney, Finney taught, and he was called a great soul winner. And using that flawed theology, it said that there were 500,000 people who were won to Christ. Where did I get that figure? I'd like to tell you. I got it from an independent, fundamental, Baptist website, The Sword of the Lord. And I would say if they believe any of that, if those people believe any of that, 500,000 people were lost and went to hell. It's only by God's grace in overturning that nonsense and despite Finney's theology that anybody could be saved. Finney's of no help to them at all. So we ought not to substitute methods and techniques for the truth of God's word in trying to deal with people to get them saved, whether we're fundamental Baptist or not. Now, my whole point in mentioning this again this afternoon is if you want to see doctrine defined, if you want to see it acted out, go to the Old Testament. Go to the tabernacle. If you want to learn about atonement and 
substitution and substitution and whether it's propitiatory and expiatory then go to the day of atonement our sins were laid on Christ now who can miss that truth in Isaiah 53 where it said all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the what the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all in the 10th verse yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him he had put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is the imputation of sin to Christ. Now these are doctrinal distinctions that are critical. God's very precise in these things. There is no sloppy theology in God's book. So when you teach A and you teach B, then you better make sure those two things can be reconciled. And if those two things, A and B, are supposed to make C, which is salvation, then all of it must be true, or you don't have salvation. Well, the fourth truth, I've only got time to begin tonight, and that is that this day was a day of service. There was much work to do. Every year in the Christmas season, our church is very busy. There's an abundance of activity. We have much to do. We have so many extra activities that... It seems like all the other business needs to stop. When anyone calls and they say, Pastor, we've got this thing to deal with and here's something that needs attention, almost always I say, well, no. We've got to wait till after Christmas. The pulpit issues, platform issues, other non-essential business, I say, we've just got to wait till after Christmas. Now suppose then, with all there is to do, God said, this is the high and holy day, Christmas. And... Only the pastor can do these things. What if I had to get the choir ready for their presentation? And then I had to get with the youth, and I've got to have a Christmas party with the youth, and then I've got to get the ladies together and have a party with them. Then I've got to decorate the church. Then I've got to put up the trees. I've got to get the candlelight service ready. I've got to get the bulletins printed and written. And God said, you have got to take all of this, take care of all of these things by yourself. Now you understand why I love Letha. And, and Gary and Dalton and Lucy and Melissa and Linda and Donna and all of you that have part in the ministry. You do things that I never have to touch. But on this high and holy day of atonement, on the most significant day, the high priest was the man. Accepting, getting the animals together for the sacrifice, he did everything. Nobody was allowed to help him. The high priest did it all. Now this is very interesting in verses 16 and 17. And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Listen, 17. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. Now, let me just explain that. When the high priest was in the process of cleansing the various parts of the tabernacle, nobody can watch. Oh, they saw him prepare for the cleansing, but they didn't go in with him. And in these verses that we've just read, he's not inside, he's outside. By this time, he's on, on the outside of the tabernacle, and all of that has to be cleared out. Nobody can be there. Now, normally, the outside of the tabernacle was a very busy place. You transition to the temple in Jerusalem, and it was a hub of activity. Outside there are the courts. There's the court for the men, and the court for the women, and a court for the Gentiles. 
And remember, on two occasions when Jesus was at the temple, these outside courts were hopping with activity. The priests were busy. They had their business of selling sacrificial animals. The sacrificial system was corrupted and made into a financial boon that inured to the benefit of the high priest. And so if you brought your own animal for sacrifice, it would be refused. And it was turned down, even though it might be spotless. It was turned down because the priest said, no, you've got to buy a sacrifice from us. Your animal must come from us, and we won't approve any other animals. And so they sold these sacrificial animals at multiple times the cost it should have cost. And as you know, they're, they're always middlemen cost. They've got to feed the animals, they've got to inspect them, they've got to clean the cages, and so on. And the costs mounted. And on top of that, you've got to add a profit margin. And so it became a very serious financial investment to make a sacrifice. And all of this money was funneled into the temple treasury so that by the time the Romans destroyed the temple, there was a hundred million dollars in the temple's vaults. The Romans came to destroy Jerusalem and they never really intended to destroy the temple. Did you know that? They didn't intend to destroy the temple. It was Rome's practice to leave the temple standing because they knew the hearts of the people can't be won without their gods. And so they were willing to surrender the temples and let the people worship their gods. But when the temple accidentally caught on fire, the gold in the vaults began to melt and it started to run out between the stones. And the soldiers, in order to get at the gold, tore those stones apart and heaved them over the wall. And thus Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. Not one stone shall be left standing upon another. So this sacrificial system, it's all corrupt. There's much activity going on. The financial transactions are going on. Then there's also the exchange of money to pay the temple tax. That could be paid only in Hebrew coinage because Roman coins had an image of Caesar on them. To the Jews, that's idolatry. So you could never bring a Roman coin to pay your temple tax. So they had to exchange that money, and the money exchangers added their profits on top of that. So we have all this activity going on, and this is what Jesus saw when he came to the temple. And so he upset those tables and drove out the money changers, and he said, you have made the house of God a den of thieves. Much activity. That's typical of Jewish life. The tabernacle and temple were places where people gathered. And today, of course, there is no temple in Jerusalem, but just the memory of that place, having the western wall, which which forms the foundation for the temple mount, the Jews gather at that place and they pray in front of the western wall, and you have the courts there, you have a court for the women, you have the men in their place, and you have all the the, uh, tourists that are milling about, watching things that are going on. The temple and tabernacle... That's the place where the people gather. Now, in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the life and center of religion. Something is always going on there. Every day, sacrifices are made, morning and evening. Now, you look at verse number 17, and you see the high priest came out of the tabernacle, and all the courts are cleared. Nobody's there. And he came out to cleanse that area only when everybody is gone. Now, there's a lesson in this. And that lesson is about Jesus Christ. But I'm going to have to keep you in suspense on that because I'm out of time. And we're going to come back next week and we're going to look at that and we're going to talk about the truth that's taught in that particular aspect of the Day of Atonement. 
Now, you see what we could do? We could just stay right here in the tabernacle, and we can keep crisscrossing between here, Old Testament and New Testament, go back and forth. And in the end, we're going to end up with a solid foundation for our faith. We understand Christ and his doctrines better. You leave this out, and it's not nearly as clear. I mean, how would you ever understand Hebrews unless you know this? The Bible is about Christ. First and last, Old and New Testaments, the Scriptures are about Christ. What did He do in the atonement? So you put the Old Testament and the New Testament together to get it right. And if what you believe concerning doctrines of the faith don't work when you put them into the Old Testament tabernacle setting, then your understanding needs to be changed. You need to get it right. Because you remember the apostles taught from the Old Testament. That was their book. Jesus preached the Old Testament. Do you remember how he went through the law and the prophets with two disciples on the road to Emmaus and explained to them everything in the scriptures concerning himself? So I would have to ask you, how is a preacher today better than a first century preacher in his doctrine of the atonement? How does he preach it if he never goes to Leviticus 16 or never goes to Exodus 28 or never looks at parts of Old Testament worship? If his doctrine doesn't fit the Old Testament types, it's wrong because that's what Jesus used and the apostles used to teach it. So let's go where they went. Study the Old Testament and you'll get the New Testament right. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time tonight we spent looking into your word and what a, what a great picture we have here of what you've done for us in offering yourself as a sacrifice for sin. Only you could do that. Only you had the purity, the holiness, and only you have the righteousness that will make us right and reconciled to the Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you for helping us to understand these scriptures. And Lord, may we always be faithful to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org